0: excited if this will come up. We are um, embarking on what will be um, 10 weeks in the Old Testament, at least. I think think that's the way it's going to work out. It's going to be 10 weeks. We're going to spend um, today doing an introduction slash overview, not an overview, introduction and background to the book of Ruth. This is going to be a little bit different kind of message today. Um, And then we'll spend four weeks in Ruth, a chapter per week. There's four chapters in the book. And Lord willing, once we finish Ruth, we'll do an overview, introductory, background message on Jonah, and then spend four weeks in the book of Jonah. So that's the plan. That will carry us through almost summer. Probably go back into the New Testament looking at thinking about either Galatians or Colossians to different focuses there. So, but anyway, just so you know, the next 10 weeks or so, uh, there'll be at least one week in there where I'm not here, so that won't be. I think Dawn will be elding. So anyway, but today, I am super excited to start this journey into Ruth. Um, And again, we're going to get this far today in Ruth. We're not even going to really cover this. It's Ruth 1-1. If you would stand for the public reading of this one verse. And it's one verse, and it's the very words of God. Whether it's one word or 20 or 60 verses... We stand because these are the very words of God and we reverence and respect and love God and are attentive to His Word. So, Ruth 1, 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. Let's pray. Father, as we begin this journey into this beautiful this beautiful historical account of your grace and providence and sovereignty. Help us, God, open up our hearts and our eyes and our lives and our minds so that we might receive from your hand that which you have prepared for us. Convict us, build us up, encourage us, and empower us to live like the redeemed. God, we ask for your help. In the power of your Holy Spirit, in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. May we see it. <clears throat> So, yeah, that's, that's, that's as much of Ruth as we're going to see today. Um, I don't know because there's no way to gauge this. I, I would suppose, maybe I'm wrong, I would suppose there are people sitting in this room, again, regardless of age, young and old, who may have never read the book of Ruth. Um, I hope you have. And if you haven't, just, I, again, I, as I've been listening and reading and looking and studying and just, this is just beautiful. It's just beautiful. And I, I know I've said that six times already. i probably said 28 more, but i um, so excited. And and the, knowing that this is the very first person, it doesn't tell you anything. That's why we're doing what we're doing today. We've got a lot to cover today. And what I want to try to do is set this scene for Ruth historically, geographically, and redemptively, okay? So historically, where it fits in history, geographical, where it fits in geography, and then redemptively, where it fits into the overall plan of God, okay? And that's a tall order, but we're going to see if we can get it done by the grace of God. So we'll jump in with both feet. If, If you know me at all, um, I love the history of the Bible. I love to see the big picture, the story, the meta-narrative stretching from Genesis to Revelation uh, and to see how it all fits together historically. So what I want to do is is set this historical setting, which we we get a little bit of information here. It gives us enough to go by, okay? The first words of the verse say, In the days... When the judges ruled. So we'll start there. Now most of you probably know there is a book in the Bible called Judges. Well, this is set, our book of Ruth that we're going to be looking at, is set in this time when the judges ruled, during that book that we call Judges, that's been called Judges. Um, And if you do a quick historical survey from Genesis to Judges, Here we go. you ready? These are things you should know. I know I've said this before. You should know where this fits in history. And if you don't, you're going to learn this morning. Okay? So we start, of course, in Genesis. Creation. God created everything out of nothing. Spoke it into existence. Uh, Adam and Eve were created. Adam and Eve sinned. And sin came into the world. The fall and the curse that came from that. Then men multiplied upon the earth leading up to the time of Noah, and um, in times that I've talked through Bible history, one of the best ways to remember it is to start with people, Adam and Eve, Noah, and we'll get to Abraham, and then plug the story around the people, okay, and that's kind of what we're doing this morning as we go from Genesis to Judges, we're not going to go from Genesis to Revelation, we're just to okay, but, um, So men multiplied upon the face of the earth, leading up to the time of Noah. And you know what happened with Noah, right? God destroyed the world and all on it in the flood, except for Noah and his family, and at least two of every land and air animal. After Noah, the Bible turns its focus onto a man named Abram. And again, we're one kind of thirty thousand foot flood over here. And Abram gets renamed Abraham. God makes a covenant with Abraham and says that all the nations of the earth will be blessed in him through his descendants. And he says that Abraham will perpetually dwell in the land where he was, which was the land of Canaan, where God had brought him from the east over into Canaan at God's behest. And God said, I'm going to give you descendants I'm going to give you this land, and I'm going to be your God for all eternity, okay? And Genesis 15, in my opinion, is maybe the most important chapter in the Bible, because that's where we see this Abrahamic covenant that God makes with Abraham and says, I'm going to bless all the world through you and your descendants, okay? Abraham's really old. His wife, Sarah, is really old, and God says, you're going to have a kid, Sarah laughs, she's like, You're right, I'm 90, my, my husband's a hundred. But she is indeed with child and, and brings forth, what's his name? Isaac. Okay? And Isaac is the son of blessing, the son of promise that God promised Abraham and Sarah that they would have. Again, Abraham's hundred, Sarah's 90, and they have Isaac by the grace of God. And that sets the tone for the rest of Scripture, by the way. Isaac. And his wife, Rebekah, had Jacob and Esau, twins. God says that the blessing that he promised for Abraham would flow through Jacob, who was actually the younger of the two twins, which is not how it's supposed to work, but God does what God wants to do. Okay? And then Jacob grows up, and he's renamed Israel after he wrestles with God. Israel has 12 sons who become the 12 tribes of Israel, and they multiply and grow as a family in the land of Canaan, where Abraham had come at God's direction. And then the last part of Genesis, from chapter 37 to the end of Genesis in chapter 50, focuses primarily on Israel's next to youngest son, a guy named Joseph. Joseph, code many colors, dreamer, he has dreams, and his, his brothers don't like him, so they sell him into slavery. He gets taken into Egypt, which starts to become really important in this story, where, where in Egypt, he's bought by a, man, by a man named Potiphar. Joseph serves Potiphar well and gets entrusted with all of Potiphar's house to run until Potiphar's wife, who wants to have, and you'll hear this word a few times this morning, relations with Joseph, she falsely accuses Joseph of trying to take advantage of her after she tried to take advantage of him, Okay? So Joseph gets thrown in prison, and is faithful there in prison to the point that he basically runs the prison. And while he's running the prison, the cupbearer of Pharaoh and the baker of Pharaoh end up in prison. They have bad dreams one night, or dreams one night, and they wake up and they're disturbed by the dreams, and they say, Man, I wish somebody could you know, interpret these dreams for us. That'd be great. Joseph says, You know, it's funny because God interprets dreams. Okay? So tell me your dream. And the baker and the cupbearer tell them their dream, and Joseph says, I know what they mean cupbearer, you're going to be reinstated to your position. You're going to be put back in your position as the cupbearer of Pharaoh. Baker, you're going to lose your head. You're going to be executed, and you're going to die. And sure enough, that's exactly what happens. Before the cupbearer leaves prison, Joseph looks at the cupbearer and says, don't forget me. Well, guess what the cupbearer does? He forgets him, okay? So he goes back and he's the cupbearer, Pharaoh, everything's good. He don't care about anybody else. He's back in his position. Baker's head's rolling up the road somewhere. cupbearer don't care, okay? So he's there in front of Pharaoh. Well, up the road somewhere, we don't know how long. Pharaoh has some bad dreams. Uh, Fat cows, skinny cows, fat heads of grain, withered heads of grain. And he just just tore up about it. He can't figure it out. He wants somebody to interpret the dream. The cupbearer goes told There's a guy in prison. You need to talk to him. He interpreted my dream and the baker's dream back when all that happened. Pharaoh calls for Joseph. Joseph comes up and Pharaoh says, I hear you can interpret dreams. I love Joseph's response. Now that's God's business. I can't do it, but God can. Pharaoh's like, I don't care who can do it. Just do it. So Joseph interprets the dreams and he says, there's seven years of plenty coming up. And there's seven years of famine that are going to be worse than the years of plenty. It'd be great if you would store up some food in the seven years of plenty so that you have food during the seven years of famine. And Pharaoh says, Well, what? You, Joseph. Joseph says, Okie dokie. And he becomes second in command to Pharaoh himself, second only to Pharaoh himself. And he leads this charge to store up the food here in Egypt while the seven years. all the way up into Canaan where Joseph was sold from and Israel and his sons need food. So they hear by Facebook, I guess that there's food in Egypt. Okay? And so uh, Israel looks at his sons and says, go get us some food in Egypt. Well, full story. They go down and they see Joseph. They don't know it's Joseph. And he sends them back with their food. He keeps one of them there. You need to read the story. Genesis 37 to 50 is just incredible. You didn't read the whole thing. But anyway, they go back and they run out of food. And Israel's like, hey, go back down into Egypt and, and get us some more food. And they said, hey, that guy down there said we couldn't come back unless we brought our youngest brother back. And Israel's like, ain't no way. I've already lost two of my sons. Joseph's dead because that's what he thought happened to him. He's like, mother, son, you left in Egypt. And ain't no way I'm sending my youngest son because he'll die and then I'll just die. Uh, come on that's the only way we're going to get food finally he capitulates sends them down goes down they come back and Joseph treats them all and he's like oh you come back you're thieves like, we're not these. we're good people and Joseph's like oh you're, you're bad people and then finally Joseph can't handle it anymore and he says it's me it's Joseph and they're like what me it's Joseph like Joseph yeah. that we sold into slavery yeah it's me He's like, go back and get Dad and the rest of the family Come out here because there's going to be more years of this famine and you're not going to make it unless you're down here with me where I can take care of you. And so, Genesis, near the end, has all of Israel and his family coming down into Egypt where Joseph helps take care of them, feed them. Israel dies there in Egypt. He blesses all of his sons. That's a really neat thing. There's a lot of prophecy that happens in there. Okay? And so Genesis 50 ends with all of the family of Israel in Egypt. Okay? Exodus, then, the next book of the Bible, then tells the story of the Israelites being delivered out of slavery because somewhere after Genesis there arose a Pharaoh that did not know Joseph, who cared nothing about Joseph and his family, and these Hebrews have been multiplying like. They seem really bad. I've been multiplying like rabbits down there, okay? And so there's like bunches and bunches and bunches of them. They're like, hey, we better do something about these Hebrews who aren't Egyptians because if not, they're going to overtake us. So they put them in slavery. And so about 300-plus years after the death of Joseph, that's where we get the story of Exodus. That's where a guy named Moses comes in, right? And then there's plagues and a 40-year journey from Egypt back up to Canaan. Which is the next this is important. This land of Canaan is the land that God had promised the descendants of Abraham back when God made his covenant with Abraham. Hence the phrase, the promised land. Okay? Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, like man I'm glad you're up. Then cover that time period, that 40 year time period from when they leave Egypt to where they get to the promised land, okay? And Deuteronomy, which means second law, Deuteronomy, ends as the Israelites are on the cusp of moving into the promised land to take it over and to live there. Now again, there's millions of, there's like over a million Hebrews at this time and a lot of them have died because of the get into all that. But anyway, here they are. They're about to move into the promised land. Moses dies, and a guy named Joshua takes over leadership uh, of the Hebrews. And then Joshua, the book of Joshua, tells the story of this nation after the death of Moses taking on a military campaign to move into the promised land of Canaan. Because people are there, and they're not just going to walk in and say, hey, we're back to take this land that God said was ours. People are like, I don't care about you, God. I don't care about you. This is our land. So they go on to a military campaign to take the promised land of Canaan back as their possession. And now watch this. Joshua ends with the Israelites living in the promised land after battling with God's help to return control of it to the descendants of Abraham. And Joshua ends his book with a charge to serve God. He says, choose this day whom you will serve. for He says, you want to serve the gods of those people whose land you've taken or some other God? As for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. And all Israel says, us too. Yes, us too. And that's how the book of Joshua ends. Um, Watch this, right in the end of Joshua. After these things, Joshua the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died being 110 years old. And they buried him in his own inheritance at Timnath-Serah, which is in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gash. Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua and had known all the work that the Lord did for Israel. Now, note that. That's important. Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua and had known all the work that the Lord did for Israel. Okay. Then in your Bible, after you end the book of Joshua, it's followed by the book of Judges. Now look at this passage in Judges 2, 6 through 10. When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders. Y'all Joshua sound familiar? Who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. And they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance. Timoth Harris, in the hill country, of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gash. Now, watch this. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. Uh oh. Now, it doesn't take a degree to know that this ain't good, right? Well the theme of the book of Judges is stated four times throughout the book including the very last verse of the book which is Judges 21-25. In those days there was no king in Israel. Look at this. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Which by the way America would be wise to look at this. Judges shows that in a cycle of apostasy the Israelites Worship foreign gods. Now, they don't don't know the God that their forefathers served, that the generation before them served, which speaks volumes about that generation, by the way. So so then these Israelites worship foreign gods. They get handed over by God, their God, to serve the other nations whose gods they're worshiping. The Israelites call out for deliverance. God sends a judge, which is not a legal worker in a robe, by the way. A judge is a leader, a deliverer. And that judge delivers them. They praise God, the Israelites do. They follow him for a while, and then the whole thing repeats over and over and over and over and over. Foreign God, captivity, cry out for deliverance, judge deliverance, worship God, thank you God, forget God, worship a foreign God, blah, 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 blah. And it's a cycle of apostasy all through all 21 chapters of Judges. And, and to put it lightly, it's a crazy time in the history of the people of God. It's basically, you could sum it up two words, anarchy and apostasy. For a period of about 300 years, from about 1350 B.C. to 1050 B.C., and in 1050 B.C., Samuel is the last judge of Israel. You've heard his name before, I'm sure. And he anoints Saul as the first king of Israel, which begins the period of the kings, which we're not going to deal with. So we're kind of done here with our historical background because here at the beginning of Ruth, Ruth starts in the early part of the period of the judges. And I'm going with a date of around 1200 B.C. or so, okay? Some scholars place the marriage of Ruth and Boaz, which you'll see in the story around 1150 B.C., but I think that's a little bit late. I mean, what do scholars know anyway, right? And so we can kind of date the book by seeing where it fits in the genealogies, because in the genealogies, get this, Boaz, who becomes a very important person in the book of Ruth, who ends up marrying Ruth. I don't want to get away the end, but you're going to get it to what happens. Okay? Boaz is identified, do, do you know who he's identified as the son of? Matthew. You're like, I thought we were done with Matthew. Never done with Matthew. Matthew 1, 5, and 6. And Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David the king. So, Boaz, who's pivotal in our story of Ruth, is the son of Rahab. Well, who was Rahab? Rahab was a harlot who lived in Jericho, and the Israelites sent spies into the land to spy out the land. Rahab, who was from Jericho, who was a harlot, hid the spies. And got them safe passage out of there. And she said, remember me and my family. they said, okay, we will. So they rescued her from the destruction of Jericho where God basically takes his hand and smashes the city from the top down and the walls fall. And they come in and they destroy everybody and everything except Rahab and her family. And Rahab ends up marrying a guy, right? Salmon. And they have a boy named Boaz. You become Boaz. I'm trying to say that as we go through Boaz Right. Um, try to set it more less twangy. So we can date the beginning of this book by knowing that Rahab was there before the conquest of the land, during the conquest of the land, and after the conquest of the land. So for her son to play a pivotal part in this story of Ruth, it has to be in the early stages of the judges. It has to be the early part of the judges. Okay, and that's not real important, but just so that we can set the historical setting properly. Uh, So if Rahab was in Jericho before it was ever invaded, and Boaz is her her son, this could not have been too long into the period of Judges. Okay? So Ruth takes place early on in the period of the Judges. Okay? So that's all the historical stuff. That's where we find ourselves historically. Now, geographically, this won't take nearly as long. A map will do. Okay? Uh, where's my map? There it is. I have a map... From, um, if you're familiar with precept studies, um, they have a tremendous study, precept upon precept study called Kinsman Redeemer. Okay? And the map I had and so much of what we're going to look at going forward today is from that study that I did years ago. It is so good. Um, and we'll, we'll lean on that a lot, actually, as we go through Ruth because it tells a story of Ruth and other things. But if you look here... Israel, that's the Dead Sea there, the Jordan River there on top of it. So you got Israel on the west side of the Dead Sea. This is Bethlehem. That's where we start our journey in Ruth. These people are from Bethlehem, and it says during the famine they go into Moab, which is on the eastern side of the Dead Sea. Ruth one one said in the days when the judges ruled there was a famine in the land, and a man and a man of Bethlehem in Judah. Went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. So there was a famine in the land there in Bethlehem, which, by the way, here's this when you've got four chapters, this short story really, pretty much every detail matters. Okay? We're going to cover, oh goodness, I don't know, 10, 12, 15, at least 15 or so years in four chapters in Ruth. So, If you're going to pick details to include in this short book, every detail is going to matter. Do you know what the word Bethlehem means? It means house of bread. Okay? Well, the bread runs out in the house of bread. So these guys, this guy takes his wife and his family into Moab. But now, wait just a 2nd Okay, about the same Bethlehem that Jesus will be born in, by the way. About 1,200 years after this time. There's a famine in the land, in the land of Israel, Canaan, which had been taken back by the Israelites in the time of Joshua. Okay, so there's on the left side of the Dead Sea, the real side. Okay, and that famine sends our introductory characters of a man of Bethlehem, his wife and their two sons, to Moab, which is there on the east side of the Dead Sea. Now, quickly, where did Moab come from? Now, this is where things get really yucky, okay? It's kind of gross. So we go back to Genesis 19 and you may have heard of a guy named Lot. Okay? Lot was Abraham's nephew. And they had kind of split up the land when they went there. And they were both blessed. And they both had great possessions. The land couldn't support of both. So Abraham said, pick where you want to go. And I'll go the other way. So Lot looks out at this place called Sodom. And it's beautiful. And it's a nice city. And to settle there. Okay? So he does settle there. He's blessed. But Sodom's not a very nice place, right? So God ends up saying to Abraham, I'm going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, twin cities there. And if you know anybody there, you might want to get them out. And Abraham's like, ooh, he should... what if I found ten righteous people? Would you destroy it? Then it, he burns down. And God said, if you find ten righteous people there, I to destroy it. Well, I can't find ten righteous people. So the angel comes and says, Lot, get out of here take your wife and your, your daughters and your sons-in-law and get out of here because we're about to wipe this place off the map. And they did, okay? Um, so it gets destroyed along with Gomorrah. Lot and his daughters flee to a cave in the land of Zoar. Lot's wife doesn't make it because she looks back and is turned into a pillar of salt. And then we see this in Genesis 19, and you're, if you don't know, Now Lot went up out of Zoar and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zoar. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters. And the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old. These are nice people. And there's not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. Let the reader understand. Come let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him that we may preserve offspring from our fathers. And they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with her father. He did not know when she lay down or when she arose. The next day, the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then you go in and lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. This is completely R-rated. So they made their father drink wine that night also, and the younger arose and lay with him, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus, both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. So, this Moabite country we just looked at has its ancestry, traces its ancestry back to this. I'm just going to leave that there, okay? A girl gets her dad drunk, has relations with him, has a baby by him, and a nation is born. And that nation has an up-and-down relationship with Israel. Sometimes it's an ally, a friend, sometimes a foe, but always, and listen to this, this is what's important. Moab always had their own gods that they worshipped. And primarily, the god that they primarily worshipped was called Chemosh. They would sacrifice their children to Chemosh, literally. Burn them in the fire as a sacrifice to their God, Chemosh. And God warned the Israelites over and over and over again to not have anything to do with the outside nations. Now watch this, for religious reasons. Deuteronomy 12, 29-31. When the Lord your God cuts off before you the nations whom you go in to dispossess, and you dispossess them and dwell in their land... Take care that you be not ensnared to follow them after they have been destroyed before you and that you do not inquire about their gods, saying, how do these nations serve their gods, that I also may do the same. You shall not worship the Lord your God that way, for every abominable thing that the Lord hates they have done for their gods, for they even burnt their sons and their daughters in the fire to their gods. Now listen, this is incredibly important, especially for the book of Ruth. Incredibly important. Israel was to keep themselves pure from the defilement of the pagan worship of the nations. That was clear, but what happens is it becomes clouded with racial bias, leading the Israelites to seek racial purity instead of religious purity. Let that sink in for a second. The Israelites messed up and they forgot the focus of why they were supposed to be separate from the other nations. Way back when God made His covenant with Abraham, God's covenant with Abraham said, all the nations of the earth will be blessed through you. God's mission has always been a worldwide mission. God's mission has never given any space for racial hate. Amen. Ever. Keep yourself pure from the defilement of worshiping other gods. Yes. Absolutely. 100%. See yourself as superior and better than other peoples, nations, languages, tongues, tribes, races. Never. God's mission has always been to have his people worship him alone. And through their worship of him, make him look glorious so that all the nations are drawn to him. But here, in the time of Judges, when Israel is mixing and mingling with foreign people and thus worshiping their foreign gods, the Moabites and their god Chemosh were a real danger to the religious purity of God's people. But the Israelites have turned it into the Moabites are bad because they're Moabites. And so this man, who we will see when we get into the end of the first chapter next week, this man named Elimelech, takes his wife Naomi and his sons Malon and Kilian during the time of famine to live, searching for food and a better life, away from Israel in this time of anarchy and apostasy, and they go to Moab. So that's the geography. Now, this is the better, bigger part. Oh, yeah, I got half an hour. I'm good. <laughs> now, so then let's finish by looking at what is the major theme both in the book of Ruth and the whole story of God throughout the entire Bible. Now there's a word that shows up several times in the book of Ruth that helps us to see who God is and what God's plan is throughout His dealings with men, especially here in the book of Ruth, and it's the word redeem. I have no idea how to pronounce. I mean, it's not real common. I guess it's gaal for redeemer and go for uh, gaal for redeem and go for redeemer. Um, but we, we need to focus on this word. This is an incredibly important word for this book and for the whole Bible, okay? So the theological workbook of the Old Testament, and I've kind of pared down the, the definition, it means to do the part of a kinsman, and thus to redeem his kin from difficulty or danger. It's used with its derivatives a 118 times in the Old Testament. That's That's a lot, okay? And there's usually an emphasis in Ga'al on the redemption being the privilege or duty of the near relative. Now again, incredibly important for the book of Ruth, for us to understand the book of Ruth. And incredibly important for us to understand the operation of God all throughout history. Okay? Now we talked about redemption a few weeks ago on Wednesday night on our Zoom meeting when we were discussing Ephesians 1. And redemption, again, is a major theme of the Bible. So what I want to do quickly is take a, a flight over to chase that thought of redemption through the Bible. Very, Again, very briefly. We could spend weeks in this, but we're going to do it in a few minutes as we finish up here in our preparation for Ruth. In the time of the Exodus, okay? Now, remember our history here. The Israelites have gone into Egypt. Their slaves are about to be delivered by God. Now, listen. In the book of Exodus, we see God promising redemption to his people who are enslaved in Egypt. Exodus 6, 1-8. through 8. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, that's where we get our our, our word, Yahweh, I am, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. He didn't forget it, by the way. He's saying I'm enforcing it again Sorry, brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for possession. I am the Lord. Now, God says several times, I'm the Lord, I'm the boss, I'm the king, I'm the one in charge here. I promised this land to Abraham's descendants. Right now, you are slaves in Egypt, but I'm going to redeem you. I'm going to deliver you. And I'm going to put you in the land that I promised would always be Abraham's descendant's land. And that has repercussions for us today, doesn't it? Amen. But he said, I will redeem you, all, with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. So then we see that that redemption plays out in the first Passover observance, which becomes a perpetual observance. To national and religious Israel, Exodus 12. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of the month every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. According to what each can eat, you shall make your account for the lamb." Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of the month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the 2 doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread, and bitter herbs. they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted its head with its leg and its inner parts." ...on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over... There's the word, right? I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast of the Lord throughout your generations as a statue forever. You shall keep it as a feast. Okay, so... The obedient Jews were redeemed... Ah! ...were delivered... ...from the wrath of God... And by having a lamb die in their place, and having the blood of that lamb on their doorposts and lintels, as a sign that they had listened to God and were obedient to His directions, otherwise they would have suffered the loss of their firstborn sons. But the lamb died in their place. They redeemed their firstborn sons by the blood of the lamb. And again, that's become so religious to us. We just we, we don't really grasp the fullness of it. The firstborn sons were bought back from the wrath of God by killing a lamb and smearing its blood on their doorposts and lentils. So that's how they were redeemed. Okay, so now, jump ahead into Leviticus. And everybody's like, yay, Leviticus, right? Which has a lot to say about redemption, both of people and land and of bloodlines. Watch this. First we see the redemption of land. And again, this is important for Ruth. Leviticus 20. 5 23 through 28. The land shall not be sold in perpetuity. Which is a great word. Perpetuity. <laughs> now watch this. God says, For the land is mine. For you are strangers and sojourners with me. And in all the country you possess, you shall allow a redemption of the land. If your brother becomes poor and sells part of his property, then his nearest redeemer. Yoel shall come and redeem the all what his brother has sold. If a man has no one to redeem it and then himself becomes prosperous and finds sufficient means to redeem it, let him calculate the year since he sold it and pay back the balance to the man to whom he sold it and then return to his property. But if he does not have sufficient means to recover it, then what he sold shall remain in the hand of the buyer until the year of Jubilee and the Jubilee shall be released and he shall return to his property. Now there's a lot to explain there. Let me see what I can do here. Verse 23 says that the land the Israelites would occupy was not to be sold in perpetuity. And I didn't just do this, it. so I could say that earlier. That means that if a clan or family owns land and sells it, it will eventually come back to that clan or family. Mention the Jubilee. That was a once every 50 year observance where all slaves were set free, debts were forgiven, and the land went back to the original family that it had come from, from that distribution of land in the time of Joshua. Okay? Because, God says, the land belongs to me. And that's important. God owns the land, and He says His design is that a family or clan should never lose their land. If it gets sold, it is to be redeemed, bought back by a near relative. Of the person who sold it, if they can't buy it back themselves, and thus restored it to its rightful family owner. Again, this will be a big deal in Ruth. Now we see this redemption echoed in another ritual called levirate marriage in Deuteronomy 25. Again, it will be super important in Ruth. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the firstborn son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. And if the man does not wish to take his brother's wife, then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate to the elders and say... My husband's brother refuses to perpetuate his brother's name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Then the elders of this city shall call him and speak to him. And if he persists, saying, I do not wish to take her, then his brother's wife shall go up to him in the presence of the elders and pull a sandal off his foot and spit in his face. And she shall answer and say, So shall it be done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. And the name of his house shall be called in Israel, the house of him who had his sin. Put that on a vanity license plate. <laughs> hey, y'all, it's me. You know him who hath a for? Oh, yeah, we know you.
1: Now, again, this will be
0: a big deal in the story of Ruth concept and theme of redemption. So the land is to be redeemed, the bloodline is to be redeemed, and that redemption also comes down to people, which we'll see as well. So this theme of redemption is prevalent in the Old Testament leading up to Ruth and in the book of Ruth. Okay, so that's the the mini flyover, okay? The historical, the geographical, and the place and the plan of God overview of the book of Ruth. So that's a good primer to help us get ready to study this book, okay? We'll refer back to all of this stuff. I promise we will, over and over and over again, these four chapters. So that, that, that's pretty much all we want to do for today, outside of apply what we've seen in this prep work. And today won't be a normal application points kind of day. We've got one application point, and it's redemption. Okay, that's it. Hopefully, you can remember the application point for today. It's redemption. Okay, re- re- redemption is our application point today. Okay? And I want to focus on redemption, how it applies to us, and how we can apply it to our lives. Now and forever. And I mean that literally. So let's revisit the definition of, re- of redeem that we looked at earlier. okay, From the theological wordbook of the Old Testament. Do the part of a kinsman, and thus to redeem his kin from difficulty or danger. Okay, To so buy the land back or to preserve the bloodline, or if somebody gets sold into slavery, buy them back out of slavery. We didn't really cover that, but it's talked about in the Jubilee thing. It is used with its derivatives 119 times. There's usually an emphasis in Ga'al on the redemption being the privilege or duty of the, what? Near relative. But we also said that the land was to be redeemed, Right? And that the land belonged to God for all time, right? But watch this. This is pretty stinking cool. Jeremiah. So Jeremiah exists historically right before the southern kingdom of Judah is about to go into captivity to Babylon. Okay? The land's about to be overtaken by the Babylonians. The temple's going to be destroyed and they're going to go into exile for at least 70 years before they start coming back. But listen to this. Whose land is this that they're getting kicked out of? It's God's land. The land is mine, God says. So it's not going to be sold in perpetuity. But God wants to show them, as bad as this is going to be, and the Babylonian captivity is awful, it's terrible, as bad as that's going to be, God wants to show them that the land would be sold and traded again. Before they go into exile, watch this. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the tenth year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, which was the eighteenth year of Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar was the leader of Babylon. At that time, the army of the king of Babylon was besieging Jerusalem, and Jeremiah the prophet was shut up in the court of the guard that was in the palace of the king of Judah. For Zedekiah, king of Judah, had imprisoned him, saying, Why do you prophesy and say, This says the Lord? Behold, I'm giving this city into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he shall capture it. Zedekiah king of Judah shall not escape out of the hand of the Chaldeans, but shall surely be given into the hand of the king of Babylon, and shall speak with him face to face and see him eye to eye. And he shall take Zedekiah to Babylon, and there he shall remain until the and declares the Lord. Though you fight against the Chaldeans, you shall not succeed. So King Zedekiah said Jeremiah, why are you prophesying these things? Jeremiah said, the word of the Lord came to me in this time. Behold, Hananamel, the son of Shalom, your uncle, will come to you and say... Buy my field, that is at Anathoth, for the right of redemption my purchase is yours. So he was the next of kin, okay? Then Hananamal, my cousin, came to me in the court of the guard in accordance with the word of the Lord and said to me, well, imagine that, buy my field, that is at Anathoth, in the land of Benjamin, for the right of possession and redemption is yours. Buy it for yourself. Then I knew that this was the word of the Lord. <laughs> And I bought the field of anathoth from Hananamel, my cousin, and weighed out the money to him, 17 shekels of silver. I signed the deed. Now watch this. Sealed it. Got witnesses and weighed the money on scales. Then I took the sealed deed of purchase. Let that sink into your brain. Containing the terms and conditions and the open copy. And I gave the deed of purchase to Baruch, the son of Nariah, son of... Messiah, in the presence of Hananamel, my cousin, in the presence of the witnesses who signed the deed of purchase, and in the presence of all the Judeans who were sitting in the court of the guard. I charged Baruch in their presence, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, take these deeds, both this sealed deed of purchase and this open deed, and put them in an earthenware vessel that they may last for a long time. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Houses and fields and vineyards shall again be bought in this land. You're like, what in the heck does that got to do with anything? Stay with me. Jeremiah gets this word from the Lord. He says, buy this land. And then preserve the deed that shows that you bought this land. Because when I bring my people back, they're going to buy and sell this land again. And I want them to see that I told them that as bad as this Babylonian captivity was, as long as they were gone... They're going to come back here, and this land is still mine, and they will buy and sell this land just like I said they would. Mm. So that's a lot to process. Now, what in the heck does that got to do with us? Oh, I tried to dramatically hit my button, and it didn't work. <laughs> and that is funny. Sorry. <laughs> Revelation 5. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who's worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly. Because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold... The Lamb of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll with its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures, and the twenty-four elders fell down before the land, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. For you were slain, watch this, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe, language, and people, and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard around the throne of the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads and myriads, and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the Lamb who was slain, to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever and the four living creatures said amen and the elders fell down and worshiped now let me ask you a question what figure was written on that scroll that was sealed up that nobody else had the right to Not to be bought and sold in perpetuity, it belongs to me. But that's not just the land, mind you; these people. Are mine. Amen. Nobody can break the seal because only the person who had the right of redemption, the next of kin, Amen. could open the seals and look at that scroll and say, "I proclaim." Thus, who was found worthy? The Lamb. The Lamb who was slain before the foundations of the earth. The Passover Lamb who was slain for our sins. Who spilled His blood to purchase men back for God. I believe it's the deed to the land and to the people of God. And only Jesus Christ, the Passover Lamb of God, was found worthy to break those seals and open that scroll. That scroll that was foretold back there in Jeremiah. Seal it up. So that when you come back into the land, you'll know that you have the right of redemption of this land. Your family has the right of redemption of this land. And I believe that's a perfect picture of what we see here in Revelation 5. Because nobody is found worthy. And John the Revelator weeps, I wish somebody was worthy. God guy picks him on the shoulder He says, don't cry. Don't weep. The lion of the tribe of Judah, this land that looks like it was slain. He is worthy to open the scroll and to hold up the contents of it and say this land and these people redeemed, and so are the people. The good news is the story of redemption does not stop in the Old Testament. The New Testament mentions redemption as well. We looked at it that Wednesday night on the Zoom meeting, Ephesians 1, 3-14. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us. through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who was the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. Those verses say that we have redemption through the blood of Jesus and that we have obtained an inheritance that we will possess at some time in the future, which is what we saw there in Revelation 5. So what does that mean? Look at Colossians 1, 9 through 14. And so, Paul says, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints of light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness. Here, redemption in Colossians is simply described as the forgiveness of sins, which is a pretty awesome deal, right? David said, Psalm 32, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no victory, iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Listen, we were worthless. We were sold as slaves to sin, and Jesus Christ, by his blood, redeemed us, bought us back and moved us from worthless to full of worth because of who He is, because of what He's done. He transferred us from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The land gets final redemption. The people get final redemption. And God is glorified. So live like people who have been redeemed. Understand what that redemption is and understand how you should respond to being redeemed. And what do they do in heaven? When the Lamb showed itself worthy to open the scrolls, they fell down in worship. And what we're going to see through the book of Ruth is a beautiful account of the redemption of the land, the redemption of a bloodline, and the redemption of some and our goal will be to see the God whose very heart is one of redemption, one of buying back, one of purchasing for himself, and giving birth to those who have, who whom he has redeemed. The land, the bloodline, and the people, all redeemed for his glory. I want to scroll back through quickly. No, no, no. Come behold the wondrous mystery, Christ the Lord upon the tree. In the stead of ruined sinners, hangs the Lamb in victory. See the price of our redemption. See the Father's plan unfold, bringing many sons to glory. Grace unmeasured, love untold. May He who sets all the captives free be our one true King. May his alone, where lost are found, be the kingdom that we seek. May he who loves the lowly and lifts their heads make us whole again. May we strive to build that kingdom here until this endless reign begins. Your blood speaks a better word than all the empty claims I've heard upon this earth, speaks righteousness for me, and stands in my defense. Jesus, it's your blood. I will glory in my Redeemer, whose priceless blood has ransomed me. Mine was the sin that drove the bitter nails and hung him on that judgment tree. I will glory in my Redeemer who crushed the power of sin and death, my only Savior before the Holy Judge, the Lamb who is my righteousness. Your plans are still to prosper. You've not forgotten us. You're with us in the fire and the flood, faithful forever, perfect in love. You are sovereign over My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Oh, my soul. Let's pray. Father, you have done perfectly what we were perfectly incapable of doing for ourselves. We were slaves to sin. We were your enemies. And you prepared a place at your table and redeemed us and bought us out of slavery. You paid the debt that we owed you, the sin debt that we owed you, with the blood of Jesus Christ. And now, by grace, through faith, in the finished work of Christ, we stand redeemed. And we praise you for that. And God, this morning, if there sits anybody here, who does not know the work of redemption that you have accomplished for them by the power of your Holy Spirit, give them new life that they might believe and repent of their sins and that they would cling to their Redeemer in glory and in alone. By grace, through faith, in the finished work of Christ. Thank you for showing us these things in your word over and over and over and over again so well. We praise you and ask for blessing upon the seed that has been sown today. Bring forth fruit for your glory. In Jesus' name. Amen. Just stand and receive the benediction. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good, that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen. You're just standing with us.